So our theme this month at FUS is mystery. And while a secret is not exactly the same thing as a mystery, on this solstice weekend, the weekend of the longest night, I'm going to share a secret with you. If you have at some point received an email from me after midnight, you may be in on this poorly kept secret. <laughs> the poorly kept secret is that I am a serious night owl. It feels like a bit of a confession to acknowledge my nocturnal nature. I don't have insomnia. I don't sleep an extra extravagant number of hours. I just sleep different hours. I'm not a vampire. <laughs> I do not love darkness more than daylight. This is just the way my body and brain have always been wired. My whole family is like this. My parents regularly stay up till 11 or midnight. You will never see them mall walking before sunrise with the other retirees. And when my sister and I were little, my mom said she was the luckiest mom around because we regularly slept until 8 a.m. I think there are parents in this room who can verify that this is not a typical thing. <laughs> Scientists aren't exactly sure what causes individuals to have a certain chronotype. That's the word that describes whether you're a morning lark, a night owl, or some other bird in between. But there appears to be a significant genetic component. I've always figured that way back in my DNA, my prehistoric ancestors were the ones who stayed up late to make sure the fire didn't go out. They were the ones who stayed up late to listen for unwelcome predators sniffing around the entrance to the cave. They were the ones who comforted and quieted the babies who couldn't sleep. These days, it's doctors and nurses and EMTs who, are, who work late in the, into the night, and the security guards and 911 operators of the world do the equivalent of guarding the cave. Before modern electricity changed the nature of night, there were definitely more risks in being up and about in the dark, as the characters in our story learned earlier. But there have always been useful roles for night people. There is, however, a societal stigma around being a night person, at least in the dominant American culture, which is based on Northern European culture. In Mediterranean and Latin cultures, it's a no big deal to have dinner after 10 p.m. or to sleep until 10 a.m. I'm pretty sure my Italian blood has something to do with my nocturnal orientation. There's nothing inherently bad about such a sleep schedule, and medical science is increasingly taking the view that you shouldn't fight your natural circadian rhythms. But thanks to Ben Franklin and his almanac, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, is practically written into the US Constitution. <laughs> the mythology of the superiority of morning people is deeply rooted. And there's a persistent belief that night people are lazy and immoral. They're just having more fun sometimes, is all. <laughs> but such attitudes have kept me in something of a closet about being a night owl, lest I be judged or cause anyone to worry about my well-being. I usually wait until morning to send the emails I write after midnight, but sometimes I forget. <laughs> There's a deep cultural suspicion of the nighttime and the darkness, and of the people who are awake during such times. As it turns out, research has found that night owls are by some measures a bit wealthier and a bit more intelligent than daytime folks. Being wary of nighttime does make historical and evolutionary sense. 
It was a lot easier to fall down a well or get bitten by a snake on a moonless night before the advent of electric lights. But the reality of modern nighttime has made things more complicated in our crowded, urbanized, and brightly illuminated world. The statistics on crime provide just one example of this complexity. In the United States, violent crimes committed by adults peak between 7 p.m., when it's not always dark, and 10 p.m., when it is. For people under 18 years old, violent crime peaks dramatically at 3 p.m. in full daylight, right after school. So the simplified world of light equals good and dark equals bad is demonstrably, demonstrably inconsistent with reality. And as we heard in the reading by Jackie James, these kinds of deeply entrenched, entrenched oversimplifications have harmful effects on how human beings perceive and treat each other. Thinking dark is always bad and light is always good even has harmful effects on how human beings perceive themselves. From East Asia to India to Nigeria to Jamaica to the United States, there is a booming business of selling various creams and potions to lighten the appearance of one's skin tone to help people of all backgrounds try to get closer to the false ideal and the false idol of white skin. The most natural thing in the world, the variation in skin color across the globe, has been demonized by human culture. The elevation of whiteness as pure and good is rooted in an outdated human fear of nighttime and all things dark. And it has been sustained by theological metaphors. Satan is the prince of darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. With black and white, dark and light, and day and night so prevalent in human discourse and thought, it's a very tough set of binaries to dislodge. But as Jackie James writes, the words black and dark don't need to be destroyed or ignored, only balanced and reclaimed in their wholeness. Part of that balancing and reclaiming is figuring out what it is about the darkness that makes these binaries so enduring, even when darkness has so much to recommend it. Darkness brings rest and quiet and respite and regeneration in contexts as varied as the soil of a garden or the womb or the darkened room where you take your long winter's nap. The dark can be a good place to meditate or have an overdue cry. A lack of daylight can, of course, cause problems for the health of both, pl both plants and people. But to my mind, a dislike of darkness seems related to another deeply rooted human dislike. And that's a dislike of mystery. Mysteries like the dark nights of centuries past contain too much unknown for human comfort. We want to know what's going on. Mysteries are viewed as problems to be solved, and darkness, no matter how natural and nurturing, is often treated the same way, as a problem to be solved. A dislike of mystery can start at an early age. How many of you have ever spent time around a young child who has discovered the word, why? <laughs> and asks why about absolutely everything. Because you're Unitarian Universalist, I bet most of us in this room have been that child. <laughs> Human beings have perhaps innate yearning to understand why, to remove mystery and uncertainty. 
This isn't a bad thing, of course. Curiosity is a terrific trait. And better understandings of why lead to better decisions and greater human flourishing. But, as a, but, a, excuse me, but a desire to banish all mystery in favor of certainty can lead to a range of human problems. There are risks in trying to eradicate the darkness. Artificial light can confuse bats and kill birds and mess up your sleep. And just as there are risks in eradicating the darkness, there are risks in trying to eradicate mysteries. These risks include haste and the use of shortcuts to artificially solve a mystery. There is also the risk of confusing an unsolvable mystery with a solvable one. I just want to pause for a moment and clarify what I mean when I say mystery. For the purposes of this talk, I'm simply defining a mystery as something we don't know something that eludes certainty. Do we somehow continue to exist after we die? Is there a God or a supreme being? These are theological or existential mysteries. Perhaps the most universal mystery, the most universal of human mysteries is the future. What is going to happen tomorrow? Many, if not most of us, have some inkling of what the immediate future will bring, at least in our own small lives but nobody knows for certain. Personal experience and my role as a minister continually remind me that human, human lives are full of unexpected events. Short-term or long-term, the future is always something of a mystery. Human anxiety about the ever-mysterious future is part of how our country got to this particular reality that we find ourselves in and it points to a frequent human mistake in evaluating the future. Failing to understand the difference between a satisfying answer and a realistic answer. A flaw inherent in democracy is that telling people what they want to hear often gets leaders farther than telling them what they need to hear or what is true. How can we secure America's future? Build a wall is a primitive and satisfying answer, regardless of how ineffectual a wall would be. Will America regain its manufacturing might, and can coal mining make a comeback? Yes is the primitive and satisfying answer, full of false certainty. Such, such answers offer the illusion of a clear and unmysterious future that looks suspiciously like the past. Recent years and recent days have, have underscored that people will believe what they want to believe, that facts are not equally important to everyone, and that there is substantial appetite for blustering certainty in a world of mystery. For many humans, that primal fear of the darkness sometimes leads to a belief in false and shiny promises. In a time when leaders of nations are dangerously capricious and even the seasons cannot be trusted to behave as they once did, the solstice is a rare note of predictability and reliability. The solstice is worthy of our attention and ritual for that fact alone, regardless of how we feel about darkness or light. The timing of its arrival is a solid answer, one that can be calculated out for millennia, with little to no chance of humans messing it up. And the solstice is a reminder of a statement that can be uttered anytime, anywhere, and be true. That statement is, it won't always be like this. It won't always be this dark 
It won't always be this light. However things are, they will change. The winter solstice has happened every year for as long as the Earth has had an axial tilt, which is to say a couple of billion years. It's been happening since long before there were people around to notice. Other winter occasions, like Christmas, are much more newly arrived on the scene and have their origins not in physics, but in human thought and perception. Unlike solstice, Christmas is not a global experience. Despite what some of us may have been taught about Santa visiting every house of every single kid on Earth, only a bit more than 30% of humanity identifies as Christian. But what the Christmas and Easter stories offer are solutions to the existential mysteries I mentioned earlier. Do we somehow exist after we die? The Easter story offers the answer yes, with a promise of heaven and eternal life. Is there a God or supreme being? The Christmas story offers the answer yes, with God coming down in human form to walk the earth among people. On these kinds of questions, the major Christmas themes may or may not speak to your theology. But there are other ways in which the Christmas story does offer universal themes and elements. For example, every single human being has a birth story. And every single one of us started out as a vulnerable baby. Every one of us humans, at some point or another, has wanted to come, someone to come along and save us. And every one of us needs hope to keep going and to carry on. Whether one views the Christmas story as factual or metaphor, it still addresses many th truths about the human condition. As the Reverend Victoria Safford pointed out in her reading, there have always been tyrants, there have always been closed borders, there's always been the suffering of the poor. And there have always been helpers and hope givers among us. Through much of history, Christianity expanded because those in power promoted it, often violently, on every continent. But the Christmas story has endured in more voluntary times and voluntary places because it speaks in very personal terms to the long-standing challenges of being human. The story has supernatural themes and otherworldly elements, but a big part of Christianity's appeal is the way stories like the Christmas story can be easily related to in the here and now. And right now, it is the here and now that it needs our attention about as much as it ever has. I would never discourage anyone from theological, theological inquiry or discourse or reflection because developing an understanding of your own relationship with atheism or humanism or God can help you lead a more meaningful, grounded life, a life more in sync with who you truly are. But whether there is a God or an afterlife is not the most pressing question being faced right now by our country and our world. The most pressing question is, what are compassionate, justice-seeking, democracy-supporting people, regardless of theology, going to do about what's going on? It's a very challenging time. Government shutdown, immigrant children in detention, record carbon emissions, just for starters, of a long list that seems to grow every week. November brought some good news for our struggling democracy, but the authoritarian playbook of warmongering, racism, and chaos is continuing. What happens next seems both mysterious and deeply concerning. But while we may be living with great uncertainty over the broader swirl of events, we can focus on what we as individuals collectively 
can do to take action in the face of ominous trends. What's not mysterious is who each of us is. What's not mysterious is what our highest values are. What's not mysterious are the gifts we bring to resistance, to efforts of compassion, to reinventing and reimagining our world. These next several days with the gifts of long nights and some holiday time off are a good time to rest and recharge and do what is restorative. There is much to balance and reclaim. Our human efforts are humanity's hope. I want to conclude as we did last year on the Sunday morning right before Christmas, right before Christmas with these words by Howard Thurman. Thurman was an African-American theologian, Baptist minister, and th civil rights advocate who was a mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King. His brief poem is called, The Work of Christmas. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the night sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among brothers, and to make music in the heart. <laughs>